The kids did a really good job this morning, right? I like that. Y'all did a good job this morning. I like that even more. Today's a beautiful day outside. I, I will not hold you up past the beginning of Super Bowl, because I want to be there. So we're going to Matthew chapter 5. I will give you my only guess for tonight's game, because some of you really want to know. A team with red will win. Yeah, that's, that's, that's safe. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5. And I'm not here to talk about football anyway. Matthew chapter 5. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while. And we have, we have taken some time to get through certain places. And last week... We spent some time on the idea of righteousness, and hopefully and helpfully, it helped some of the kids understand the idea behind righteousness. And we're dealing with Matthew chapter 5, and we're in um, verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, and I'm trying to back up to a place I want to be in my notes, so... Follow with me, if you will. We're going to back up just for a few moments because there's certain things we need to do to regroup. And we're going to try and get through 21 through 26 this morning. Uh, that's my goal. Uh, but it doesn't matter because we got till 540 kickoff. So, just kidding. No, I'm not. But that's right. Um, so here's what we got. Uh, let's just read. We're going to read 21 through 26. And then I'm going to go back for a minute and just talk about some ideas of where, how to break up the Sermon on the Mount. We are in probably one of the most difficult passages to understand in the Bible. Reason is, because we're not in that time frame that Jesus was speaking to a predominantly all Jewish audience. His disciples, his, the venue was on a mountain, and we'll talk about some of the things he had said prior to this, but I want to read 21 through 26 just to get where we're going today, because Jesus is going to give us a solid interpretation of what the law meant. Well, different ideas of the law. Verse 21 says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present the offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not be delivered uh, may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and, th- and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of here until uh, there until you have paid up the last cent. So here's where we're at. Uh, this is difficult, because if you read this and you want to follow it by the letter of the law, we have some issues. Uh, I don't know if you've ever driven in the roads of Tulsa. I think at some point, if any of you are similar to me, you would have said, Fool! That the guy that cut in front of you, the guy that slowed down in front of you, or the person that did something really like out of the ordinary. The other day I was trying to 
I was going into QT and I was going straight, straight. I go straight in. Somebody wanted to go left and I didn't give them the right of way to go left in front of me, which is you don't have the right of way. I'm going straight. And I'm in the church van and I smiled and she's waving at me with only one uh, digit. Uh, and I'm saying, like, like, what did I do wrong? And, I, and all, I could, all that came out of my mouth is, you fail. I don't know if I said it to her or myself because I have no idea what I did wrong, but she thought I had done something uh, really inconsiderate, I guess is the best way to say it. And I don't like, so I didn't know how to wave back and respond to her, so I just did the parade wave. You ever done it? So, so uh, you know, because I was like, this is Tulsa. They don't do that. That's Miami. Um, but, uh, but you know, people, if, as we look at this, if we go by the every letter of this, of this law, and, if, and say this is law, we're going to have some issues to start with. And we have to understand what Jesus is doing and how he's, how he's presenting this. So I'm going to go back just for a few minutes and look through where we're at. Uh, first of all, go back to chapter 4, verse 17. We're just going to look at verses to get us to where we're going. Okay? Verse 17 says, From the time Jesus began, from this, that time, Jesus began to preach or teach, I think is a, or proclaim, a herald, uh, and say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is again presenting what is necessary for the coming kingdom. He wants the change of mind that's required by these listeners to come into the kingdom. They have to change their mind specifically about who their Messiah is. And that, that was difficult. Then it goes on in verse 23, Jesus was going about all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So we have in this understanding is, A, there's repentance for the kingdom of heaven, there's the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and also there's the fruit that's required in that kingdom for repentance. What is required in that kingdom? This is not, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it's not about salvation. It's not about being obedient to the law to gain something. It's about an ethic that I believe is for the time that Jesus was on earth and a time to come called the tribulation. This is the ethic that leads into the kingdom because there's requirements are very stringent that's there, but there's also things we can apply to life today. Uh, I think one of the oldest laws there is is thou shalt not commit murder. I read Genesis 4. Anybody read Genesis 4? And with... Cain and Abel, Cain was going to do something, and God says to Cain very clearly, uh, stop, think, and drop. You're, you're, what you're thinking, Cain, is absolutely wrong. Your sin is crouching at the door, because Cain was saying, I'm going to go take out Abel, because Abel was, you know, got God's blessing. Now, that's kind of a really bad place to get uh, angry. That one guy was doing what God required, and you weren't, and God corrected you, and you got mad instead of at God. At your brother. But anyway, we know that's the first murder, and God indicted that very clearly in that time period. We're also talking to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the only nation required for a national salvation for that king to rule and to reign on earth. Israel has to be nationally saved and in a place that Christ can rule as their king. And we know that comes under the auspices of the law he gave to them. I just have a slide up here. We're really not going to go through this. This is kind of preemptive. Uh, but what's happened is during this time frame, as we look at the law, they were going to get blessed for doing and being obedient. 
the nation of Israel at the time of Christ had not done the law. They were not obedient. They were doing Pharisaical Judaism. They were lining up to the Pharisees and the teaching of the Pharisees. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to read to you from the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the Bible. And I'm going to read things that they had come up with that had to do with divorce, marriage, adultery. And you look at some of them, and some of them it's practical case law. It's under. It's really interesting. But did they go beyond what was written? Or did they go beside what was written? Or did they obscure what was written? That's the questions we got to ask. And the Pharisees had a righteousness of their own. If you read in Matthew 23, we're not going there now, but it's up here. Um, wow, it would be nice if I turn this on. Uh, it describes the Pharisees and scribes as hypocrites. Because why? Their outsides were beautiful. If you were to judge somebody by attire and presentation and how they held themselves up in society, you'd say the Pharisees, they're the bomb, I guess is the expression still. They're the best of society. Cream of the crop. And yet, Jesus never looked on the outside. He looked within the man. And he says, these guys are dirty inside. They're unclean. They're unhealthy. They have no relationship with me. They may call out to the Lord, Lord, but they, they, I don't know who they are. And constantly throughout Matthew, there's this back and forth between the scribes, Pharisees, and Jesus himself. And chapter 23 is a whole uh, indictment against them as a people. And that's important for us to see and understand. So the breakup I put down for the Sermon on the Mount that has to do with the law, and I use that loosely because only three of these are found in the Ten Commandments. The rest are found in the law or the instruction. Obviously, in the Ten Commandments, you'll find about murder and about adultery and about lying, bearing false witness. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you do not find in the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's in the Levitical laws, and we'll get into that. And love your neighbor is only part of what was said, not the whole of what was said. And we'll have to go into it and how the Pharisees had used that as a yoke over the people's uh, lives that was overbearing and that Christ had told them, you know, what they had done is basically taken the kingdom by violence because they did violence to the text. So the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to just kind of get us to understand this, is about righteousness. Does your righteousness, look at verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness, who the crowd he's speaking to is predominantly at this time the disciples, the argument is how many, uh, four or all twelve, because I believe Judas was never righteous the way God wanted him to be, um, but I don't think this has anything to do with imputed righteousness. But for a while, Judas seemed pretty good. Do you know that? Does anybody realize that Judas, when they sat down at the table and said, who's about to uh, betray Jesus, they all they all even said, is it me? Like, you don't know yourself? Are you going to betray Jesus? No, oh, no, I'm not going to do that, but is it me? Because they couldn't say, it's him. So something about Judas at least gave an air of righteous living, living what we would say the right way, the godly way. And you could do that. You could put on that hypocritical math mask because we saw that the Pharisees had done that. Um, that is why Jesus teaches on various issues involved in kingdom righteousness. What's this kingdom righteousness about? Why is it different? Now, today we don't live in kingdom righteousness because we did. We're all in trouble anyway. Uh, I know you. Know why? I'm like you. Now, don't go around saying I do the same things. I do other weird things. But we're all, we're all, 
we're all saved and trying to grow in our different places. But we, listen, when Christ comes again, what's ushering in is a kingdom that is saved. The Jewish kingdom will be saved. And at that point, the new covenant will be enacted where his spirit will be in them and his word will be in them. It'll be impossible for them not to be obedient. We don't have that level of, of obedience. And if you have uh, two verses in you, you just became saved yesterday, you know, two or three verses, that's all the information you have. Uh, and we talked about that a little bit in the first class. So, the next point is about Genesis 3.24. What's the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of anything in the Old Testament? It was to drive you to Christ. It was, it was a school bus to get you to where they were spiritually and physically to get them to say, I'm missing something. And Israel didn't at the very beginning. says, all these things we will do. We'll obey everything you've given us. Uh, how was their track record? If you were to check off Israel's track record, how much did they obey? Because I look and I see Israel in the wilderness and they're called grumbling and mumbling people. That's not obedient people. I don't think uh, if your teenage son or daughter said something under the breath that you would say, oh, they're so spiritually righteous. They're just good kids. They're really good kids. If you are, you're just full. <laughs> Right? Because we want kids that what? Do things willingly, uh, don't roll our eyes, and learn the word whatever. You know, those are the things we're looking for in Israel. Learn the word whatever, and then fought with God. And that's where we're at. Um, the Mosaic Law made one guilty and condemned. That's all it did. Um, there's nothing in the law that says, this will bring you to a place of salvation. Uh, you've Now, I, I want to reiterate just for a moment as we do, because we're going to go into a motif that's really neat for Bible study. And here's what's neat. When something's repeated, it's helping you understand how to put the frame around it. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and, and get a grasp of what's happening and, and you like to color or do certain things, it'll say in, in verse like verse 21, you have heard, boom, and then in verse uh, 22 it says, but I say to you. So we have this, you have heard, but I say. Now, here, you gotta understand what's going on here because I think some people misinterpret this. Jesus is not giving a new law. He's not adding to the law. He's giving the correct interpretation of what was always on the books. He's allowed to do that because he's God. He would not be allowed to add to it even if he's God because that would say, okay, all the stuff I gave you before is okay, but I forgot to tell you this. And there would be an issue with that. I would have an issue with that. And you should too. Because God should give us the information we need for life and godliness. Now, if we don't understand the correct interpretation and we're allowing people to interpret it in their own way, we're going to have an issue. And if you don't realize that, there's, uh, I don't know, maybe yesterday was 500 denominations. Today, maybe 1,000. Why? Why do we keep having so many denominations? Because the schisms arise over a translation or an interpretation of a certain passages. You know, so there's fights. And if you don't know what a Baptist is, they agree with getting wet. They need wet Christians. Then some people say, well, we don't agree with that. There's no such thing as that, so they want to go off and that. So we go off on small theological tangents instead of, here's where it is. Here's what the Bible says. Uh, so, I want you to understand that what Jesus is not saying that, and, and understand, go to chapter 7. We gotta do this real quick. Chapter 7, cause in the motif of you have heard and I say, let's see what carried the day. What did the crowd hear? And that's important to understand why Jesus is saying something with an authoritative, but I say to you. It's very authoritative. 
Um, and it says this in verse 28, the result of, uh, of that, when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Isn't that really great? The multitudes. So we started out with maybe maybe four to a dozen guys that were the inner circle that Jesus was talking to. And while Jesus is talking, and I don't believe it's just six chapters that would probably take 15 minutes to, to speak out. I think it was hours, if not broken up by days, and this is a synopsis. But the crowds hung around and they were amazed. And if you read through the Bible, you know on many occasions, Jesus had to you know open up the restaurant because they were not leaving and he had to feed them. Okay, And verse 29 says, For his teaching, this is the reason why they were amazed at it, for his teaching was uh, as having authority and not as the scribes. There was a large gap between what they had heard and what Jesus was saying. Quite a difference. Get that? I want us to understand that. So when we look at this, we're going to say, here's what was said. Why did Jesus have to deal with certain things? That's what we're going to have to deal with. That's the, that's the uh, motif, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, also, when he says but, this word but, this, it's not the normal contrasting. He's not, cran- he's not saying, they said this, but in contrast to what they said, I'm going to say this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what they said, and I'm going to give you uh, an information that is factual that has to do with those. In other words, I'm giving you a little bit more information on what they've said. I'm not contrasting. I'm just saying, here's more information. And we all want different occasions where we desire, we know what it says, but I need a little bit more information about that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen keep off the grass signs. I need information. I, why do I have to keep off the grass? Just because you put a sign up? If I cut through the grass, I know I can get there faster, but why should I keep off, off it? Now, if it says keep off the grass booby-trapped with landmines, Good reason. I'm walking around on a sidewalk. If it's just keep off the grass because we just fertilized it or whatever they did to it, we did something, I'm staying off the grass. But if they say, you're staying off the grass because we just don't want you on the grass, I'm saying, that's not really... Now, I do obey signs. Don't don't think, well, he's going to just purposely do that. But it kind of leads to, you know, where people do walk on the grass, right? You ever seen that sign? There's a Listen, I told you about the do not fish sign and the guy standing next to it with a rod and reel. I don't know what he saw, but he's fishing in a pond, which I wouldn't eat out of that pond anyway, right next to a sign that says, don't fish. So either he doesn't read the 16 languages the signs are now in, or he just didn't care. Um, I don't know if you know that. Every sign that they're printing out now is like multiple languages, cover everybody. Uh, and uh, But they can't get the ones that don't read. you got to read. Um and then lastly, the main point is what men must do to get that kind of righteousness that God requires. How do you get that kind of righteousness for the kingdom? Now, we're not mixing this up with imputed righteousness. This is where it becomes difficult as we discern what the Sermon on the Mount says, because most of us as believers that have been in the church for like 16 minutes, we understand what imputed righteousness is, and that's what's required for us to go to heaven, Right? And our righteousness of my own. Why? Because I have fallen short of the glory of God. I need His righteousness. And that's why we read the book of Romans. Do not read the book of Romans into Matthew chapter 5. You will have so many difficulties. Because I can't find any law that gets you imputed righteousness. 
Only Christ does that. And Christ at this moment had not died on the cross. Okay? Last I checked, he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, right? Make sure we're on the same page. So the formula that we need to maintain, and I think I've gave these before, we're just kind of backing so we can get up to this. These five subjects are addressed, are not just for Israel. They have some, they have a universal uh, moral principles in them. Uh, Obviously, don't murder. I don't think we have to tell anybody in this room, don't murder. Um, Anything, you shouldn't. That means take a life unlawfully. It doesn't, has nothing to do if you just join the Air Force or the Army and we go into military battle and you want to be a, uh, you know, not be able to shoot anybody because I don't agree that we should be doing that. That's not what this is saying. Okay? What it is is just a moral principle. Therefore, the kingdom reflects these universal rules or guidelines. A good for all mankind idea. It would be good if no one, what? Anywhere got mad at anybody even. Because, I don't know about you, murder's just not, I'm just going to go out and kill everybody. There's issues that arise psychologically and so forth that lead to the murder. Um, it's, so we'll go through these with that idea, this is good for all mankind. But, he's not saying do this, it's not a societal uh, gospel. Because he's given it to Israel. Israel has to lead the nations in morality and different aspects of spirituality. Secondly, the most important thing in a kingdom is how close the king relates the word of God to the word of God and how his subjects relate to the word of God and the king. Israel, I don't know if you know this, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah king. They couldn't relate to him. They had issues. And later, uh, Jesus will say, as he's coming into Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather them like a mother hen, together. But they rejected it, and that's how he's already been rejected as their Messiah, their King. Uh, And those issues are necessary. We already went through some of these. Uh, I'm not going back on those. Um, So hang on a second. Um, So we're going to look at the application now of, of the Torah. Now, when I say Torah, again, I want to reiterate this over and over again. I know it's because it's a foreign word, and I'm trying to make it in the climate it's in. Nobody would have said Old Testament. I don't even think we should say Old Testament because that gives a, uh, an understanding to most people. If you say Old Testament, it's old. I, I want the new one. And that's why we, there, today at the Super Bowl, you may see five or six different commercials that say, this is a new improved Snickers bar. What? what? It's still got peanuts, caramel, and all that other stuff. Why is it new and improved? Because what? They want you to buy the new one because the old one is old. They want you to buy new stuff. You all, Everybody needs new stuff, right? Um, but when we look at the Bible as a whole, we have the Hebrew Scriptures, we have the Greek Scriptures, but the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, is also known as the Torah as a whole. It's called instruction. The Torah also means law. It has to do with the idea of law, and it also has to do with the five books of Moses. I'm using it as anything in the in the whole of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that has to do with anything legal. Okay? That's what I'm using it as. So there's three parts to the normal law. So if you were to say to somebody, I want to obey the law for salvation. Okay, there's the commandments that are given in Exodus 20, or the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 through 23 are the judgments, mispatim, called the judgments. And then there's ceremonial law, we call the Levitical system. So if you just look at this, they can't even do that one. There's no temple, there's no priesthood, there's an issue with that whole thing. They can't do that. And you can't say, 
I want to be as clear as I can. Well, we can obey this and be right with God and not obey this and not be right with God. The Levitical system was a picture of how, how you had a relationship with God through the offerings and, the, and so on and so forth. And if there's no offerings and sacrifices going on, how do you have a relationship? Well, we're really good. We're re- Listen, we're really good and we're good people. And when we weigh things, we've got enough mitzvah points that we've earned to be good. So yay. And that's not how God works. God doesn't work on a point system. Uh, sometimes we do. And we like point systems, um, but that's that's not the place to be. And as we look at this, the sacrificial system, according to Hebrews, was filled in Christ. So you need Christ. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, talks about the, those those being a shadow. It's a shadow theology. So you weren't really hit with the real thing until Christ came. But this is what's going on. Jesus isn't going to touch the ceremonial law. He's going to deal with what, what you would consider or I would consider. Hey, that's easy. Remember the rich young ruler? What must I do to be saved? Right? And what did Jesus answer him? He gave him some of the law. Do these things. And if you were really smart, most of us don't get really smart, because Jesus wasn't saying, if you do these things, then you'll have eternal life. He's saying, do these things. Because why? Because this guy thought he was a doer. And he said, all these things I've done since what? Since, since I was born, basically since the beginning. How do you do all those things since you are born? You understand? It's, it's, it's really almost comical. And G, all Jesus had to do was go through this and say, have you done all these? And he would have been waylaid. But he wanted to show him how things he had done, he had only done just to be a doer, not to have a relationship. Remember the end of the Old Testament tells that the Hebrew people were just doing sacrifices and doing them at a ritual. Any of you stood at the refrigerator lately with the door open going, nobody's done that? I did that the other night. I opened up the refrigerator door and go, what was I looking for? Oh, my car keys. (laughs) Because we just think everything's in the fridge. We'll find whatever we need in the fridge. Okay? And we just do things ritually. And Israel was doing the opening of the refrigerator door ritually, and that was the wrong place to be. So here's what he's going to cover. We already talked about what he's going to cover. Um, I've, I'm going to give you a greater outline for this section just real quick. For, to, we're, we're at the end of chapter 5. We're middle towards the end. He's only going to deal with these. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is one idea about righteousness. He's going to deal with principles of righteousness expressed by the law. He's giving them Principles. That's all we got to do. Principles. Because he's going to show the practice in verse in chapter 6. Here's what the principles are. Let's look at the principal players, the Pharisees, and see how they're practicing the law. How are they doing those things? And if you just look at chapter 6, verse 1, starts off really uh, with a resounding noise. And I'm trying to figure a way to show you all at some point how this was. But it says, Beware of, of practicing your righteousness before men. Uh, to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So the thing he's talking about is practical righteousness to get rewarded for. Um, most of us have done things before people. If you take your arm and pat yourself on the back, there's your reward. Because that's all you were doing. It is to be seen by somebody. And it goes on in verse 2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound the trumpet before you, you know, Put money in. Look what I gave to church. Right? 
Don't do that because the as the Pharisee as the Pharisee hypocrites the Pharisee, that's who they are the Pharisees do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by men. If you're honored by men, truly I say to you, you have your reward in full. So if men are rewarding you for your good doings because you're doing it before men, that's it. That's all you're getting. So that's what the, that's what we have in chapter six, one through eighteen. Chapter 6, 19, 19 through 7, 7, 12, as he further teaches the perspective there to have in living under this law. So if you just get the ideas here, it's really not to us, but there is things for us. With me? This is before we even get into this. So um, principles given of righteousness then expressed by law. What made Israel unique is God gave them these, this constitution and land. We are not people of a constitution and a land. Now, some people may say the church today is living under the new covenant. And I will say as nicely as you can, no. We are not living under the new covenant because the new covenant also has to do with land. Okay? And things in that new covenant we don't have. For instance, I'm teaching you Bible class today, right? We're talking about the Word of God. We're sitting down, opening it up together, looking at different things, getting different perspective on certain ideas. You don't need that under the New Covenant. Otherwise, I'm playing the part, me, myself, as a part of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you what it says. No, we're walking through it so the Spirit can affect within you, but you don't know the whole Word. We're, otherwise, what are we doing? How many of you have a book of the Bible memorized? See, there's an issue already, right? It's not nothing. We don't have it in us. We're trying to get it in us. Uh, that's difficult in itself. Secondly, effectiveness of the Constitution depends on the submission of the subjects. If you know what's going on in the United States today, we got a problem. We got people that read the same document differently. Did you know that? Now, I'm not going to tell you what side of the fence I'm on, but I'm not on the other side. But we have the same thing in the church where we can open up the Bible in different places and people read it differently. And that's a skew of your, what we would call your ability to interpret and that's your hermeneutic. How do you look at it? So if I look at something as a uh, biblical student and I want to see what God has to say from a dispensational slant that I have, I'm going to find certain things. If I'm not, I'm going to look for something differently. If, if you're a liberal, you're going to read the Constitution one way. If you're a conservative, you're going to read it another way. If you want a total middle of the line and be a moderate, you're going to read it a different way. So you have at least three readings, and most of them don't know how to read. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. Thirdly, God did not seek Israel's input in this agreement. When God made this, it was a Susan Tree idea. He's not asking anybody's input. He's God's Constitution to the nation without their input. You with me? So... And I'm not going to go through all these. I think we went through these anyway. So I want us to go to Proverbs real quick. I want you to see something. And what you're getting is some of my thinking as I went through and prepared for this uh, subject in the Sermon on the Mount. Proverbs 6. And I try to take the Bible literally. And when certain things on my mind are not clicking together like good cogs and coming out smooth, I want to say, why is this happening? Why did why is this left out? Why is this not put in? So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, says, These are the six things the Lord hates. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty strong. God hates something. So I, I, I kind of pique my interest. I want to know what God hates, because 
as believers, we don't want to do what God hates. Then he says, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. I said, hey, hands that shed innocent blood. Hey, that's the Sermon on the Mount. That's cool. He's going, he's making, he's taking the Proverbs and expanding them a little bit. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, false witness that utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. That's, that kind of resounds a lot to me, like parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It, it kind of works a little bit together. My, then he goes into verse 20, which I think we often skip. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. They were to talk, Israel was supposed to talk about God's word night and day. Put it in the child's head. What, what's the conversation tonight? Bible. What's the conversation tomorrow night? Bible. What's the conversation the next night? Bible. What did they have? They had God's word. And they had their experience of what God had done. And they wanted to put it into their children's mind and keep it fresh before them. And it was important for them to get that. So I think it's important for us to look at that. Uh, so, we already went through some of this. So let's talk about murders. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and, and just deal with this section. Okay? Um, I don't think I have a whole lot on this other than that. Okay, the reason I did this is because I think, as I look around the room sometimes, everybody's writing a slide and I go too fast and writing a slide. Listen, I'm going to say a little something different than I said in the first class. Slides are free. If you want them, I can give them to you. All I have to do is ask. You don't have to sit there and take pictures and, not, and do all these things and write them down. But I want you to be able to listen and write things in your own understanding because that makes it easier for you to remember things. So let's talk about biblical law on murder. There is a law on murder. Uh, first of all, I don't think any society t- should tolerate murder. And I don't believe any society tolerates murder. And I think every society handles it differently, and I don't always agree with our society, even state by state, how we handle murder. And somebody will inevitably say, well, what if they're innocent? The Bible says, when found guilty in a court of law between at least two or three witnesses, if that's what it has, they are to be put to death. That's We're to carry out, uh, according to Romans 13, God's wishes as a society, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Okay, but... It should not be tolerated. Uh, and, and honestly, I'm tired of numbers that we always get on the news that's saying how many people have been murdered. And then uh, somebody will say, I wish guns were removed because guns are killing people. Well, I don't think a gun has ever killed anybody without somebody's hand on it. You know? Uh, I've been to Israel. How many people have been to Israel? Okay, I've been to Israel. You know what they take to school with them, 15 years old? They take a gun. You don't want to mess with these kids that take guns to school. Have you ever read anywhere in Israel that there's school violence? I'm just thinking, thinking out loud. The problem is, what's the society like that's creating an environment of murder? That's what we have to look at. Okay? And I'm not advocating, please, don't come up the out. You want everybody to carry guns? No. I don't want everybody carrying guns because I know what people are like. But Israel's got a different climate. Okay? Um, 15 years old, they got to be able to take apart a, a gun and, and do it efficiently and be in the military. We don't do that with our children. We just let them play sports or whatever. Secondly, Jesus never condones murder. Never condones murder. Yet he does not address the physical nature of it. He assumes the physical nature. When it says, you have heard 
The ancients say you shall not commit murder. Nowhere does Jesus say, here's the right application of dealing with the law. Here's how to handle it. Here's how to carry out capital punishment. He's not dealing with that. That's a given. And uh, he only addresses, he's only going to address the mental attitude of what creates murder. The mental attitude that creates it. And he's going to use throughout this uh, hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole, excuse me. Hyperbole, I'll get it right. And he's going to say things that kind of sound like an exaggerated statement. And if you apply them all right down, straight down the line, you're going to have an issue, as you will see. Uh, Murder in the Old Testament, first of all, the first use is in Exodus 20.13. The word here for murder that Jesus is using, the equivalent, is in Exodus 20, not Genesis 4. Actually, what it says in Genesis 4 is that Cain slew his brother Abel. The slaying is equivalent to how you would take a sacrifice and cut his throat. Okay, obviously it was murder, but that's not the word God had used for that there. Uh, so Exodus chapter 20, um, there are different words. The word that's used in Exodus 20 where thou shalt not murder deals with take a life criminally outside of the law. Take a life criminally being outside of the law. In other words, the law doesn't mean anything. I'm just cutting, uh, killing this person, um, whereas there's times it doesn't. David kills, uh, kills Uriah through Joab. David himself is guilty. Now, here's the problem we, we're going to run into. What is the punishment for murder? We say capital punishment. David doesn't die. Cain doesn't die. Uh, why doesn't he have that pe- penalty? Because the penalty is even repeated uh, in Genesis 9, right, with Noah. When Noah gets off the boat, God gives him certain things about taking a life that took another life. How do you do it? Take the life. Because uh, murder is not going to be tolerated, and yet David seems to get away with it. Because why? He's a God after a man's own heart. So there are certain things God allows. Now, here's what we got to do. we got to, in our minds, separate ideal, real, ideal, real, and toleration. Because if God didn't tolerate some of the things that have happened in society, he would have wiped this out a long time ago. In Genesis, well, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, just for conversation for a minute. Go to Genesis chapter 6, since this is a, a predominant thing that happened in the course of human history. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to skip through most of it. I just want to get to one verse. I want to just show you something. Genesis 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. What did man do that led to the flood? I have no idea what he did, but I know what man was. You hear the difference? I can't tell you if there was murder all over the place, if there was polygamy, if there was adultery, um, if there was lying, cheating, scams. I can't tell you what they were. I know it was pretty bad because God flooded the whole earth. But it was so bad that he says every thought of his heart, every thought of his thinking process, the very thinking that he had was only evil continually. You get that, right? And after the flood, 
and after society grew again, that evil inclination was still there. So as we've gone years and years past the flood, I can tell you this, man's thinking is evil. And Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter with men's evil thoughts, not acts. And I want us to be as clear as we can with that. Turn with me to Jeremiah on the way back to Matthew. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. So that was Genesis 6. I can't put a date on it, but it was then. Jeremiah 7, verse 8. Jeremiah 7, verse 8 says, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You will, st- you, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered? that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in, in, the, in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So Israel had led a span of time that they had done things that were egregious to God because of their mental attitude that produced these acts. Hosea, chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 through 3 says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. That's an indictment to what? To what had happened in the nation of Israel that should have never happened, is their mental attitude broke down, and they were living like the Gentiles of the world. They were no different than the nations around them. And that was an indictment to them. In Numbers You don't have to go there. Numbers chapter 35, God even allowed the nation of Israel to build a city of refuge for those who murdered or one accused of murder so that they would be in their own city until either an indictment was done or they found innocent or until the the sentence was carried out. So let me give you an idea what murder is. It's to take human life as a serious act to God. Because we are all created in His image, and He alone has the authority to take life. When we take life without warrant, we take God's place. That's what murder is about. When you, when someone takes a life without due reason, in other words, if we're carrying out capital punishment, we're not, we're doing what God has asked us to do. Okay? But if you're just carrying out punishment, you're taking God's place because, uh, because due, uh, due process of punishment shows respect for God's word and respect for life of the victim and the authority of God. When we carry out due justice, it's caring for God's word. And there are ways to carry out lawfully, and rightly so, capital punishment. But if you know somebody who murdered just, to, just because something happened or 
or, or you know, wifey burnt his toast. That's just plumb wrong. Uh, so let's look to the text. Go to Matthew 5. We've got a few minutes to get in the text. It shouldn't be that difficult now that I made the road easy. So it was a long-standing idea. Long-standing idea in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. That you've heard, you shall not commit murder. Now our text sometimes... Uh, is interesting how it, it's laid out. Um, it says you have heard that the ancients and and um, some manuscripts may say uh, the the old the old ones or the uh, old things. Uh, I'm good with that, but basically this is a statement that had gone on and on forever. We all have heard it. We've heard it from the beginning of the Word of God. And I think in our context, the idea of this is a long-standing understanding. I know that sounds a little confusing. But we all know it's wrong to commit murder. Uh, Which is interesting, because if you let your mind wander back to the Ten Commandments, there were nothing positive. It says, do this and be... It basically says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that's kind of how we treat our kids. Is we say, don't do that, little time. We never kind of give instruction on the other side. And the reason God's dealing with his kids like that, because in fact they would. They would do these, and he'd say, don't do that. And it's a very negative idea, even presented here in the New Testament. He says, uh, "Whoever uh, you have shall not commit mur- uh, murder is a very negative. Don't do that. Uh, never, ever do that. Uh, and what follows is interesting because it's not part of the commandment. Whosoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Uh, that's rabbinic tradition. So what he has is, you've heard it say, always said, you should not commit murder. But the rabbis added this. Now remember, what he's doing is dealing, or we would say the Pharisees. Later they became the rabbinics. So the rabbinic understanding really started after the time of Christ. So if you know of a rabbi, that they, they wasn't in the time of Christ, it was Pharisees. Even though Jesus is called Rabboni. But that's, that understanding wasn't really fully developed yet. Um, and what we have, though, in every society on the books, there's a rule about murder, and Israel did too. It requ- and, and we know that today it requires a verdict in a court. Um, but the heart of the law's intention was not meant to deal with the fact of murder. The intent was to deal with the mental attitude of murder, what leads up to it. Therefore, the scribes and Pharisees knew the law required when it came to committing murder, but they lacked a spiritual grasp of the nature of all of God's laws because they were whitewashed. What this law meant to do was to protect one's life. It's interesting. In verse 22, it says, But I say to you. Now, here's, here's what's important for us to understand to get a Jewish mindset here. Okay? In, in, in their... Ethics of Our Fathers, a book that was penned around 190 to 230 A.D. From the oral traditions handed down, they penned this book. Here's the very first tractate in it. The very first, You open up the book, this is the first thing in the book. Okay. Moses received Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. They said, their, they said three things. Be patient in, in administration of justice. 
raise many disciples, and make a fence around Torah. Which I think is fascinating. You want to put a fence around Torah to protect it from what? Something being put into it and added to it, or something being taken away from it. So they themselves were allowing things to be added to it that weren't really there. But my question is, is that what Jesus is doing? We've got to be very careful if he's doing, or is he making up new laws or adding to it? A key to a proper perspective of human life demands if one uh, took a life, guilt was pronounced via verdict in the courts, yet kingdom righteousness also demands more than just a physical nature of keeping a law. It was more than keeping a law. Look with me at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 17. Stay in Matthew. I'll be there right back in a second. This is what I referred to before, but I just want to read, read it in the text. Um, verse 17 says, And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, who are you talking to? You talking to a good man or are you talking to God? And he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Which, first of all, A, is not in the right order. Jesus didn't know the right order. Think about it for a minute. And he also didn't, he left out a few, didn't he? And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. What a good boy, chick. He was a good boy. He kept all these things from a very young man. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Now, he's not saying do this one thing, you go to heaven, but you lack something. Go and sell all, your possess, uh, all you possess and give it to the poor, and you shall have your treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So what did he lack? Not selling everything. No, it's not, he's lacked a mental attitude towards his things. His things were what? His things. Who was going to get them? Listen, I don't, I, know, I don't know if you all realize this, but when you pass away, someone's going to get your things. Does it bother you that somebody's going to get your things? You can't take your things with you. Eternal life requires no pockets. But, the, but at these words, his face fell. His countenance dropped. He went away grieved because he was one who owned stuff. A lot of stuff. He didn't know what he was going to do with his uh, camel Rolls Royce. He just could, he couldn't part with that thing. It got him places. I mean, whatever it was, he was hanging on to it dear life. His mental attitude is, it's all about me. And that's a bad place to be. Um, so when Jesus starts on this idea of, of murder, he wants to know what he wants to show what the mental equivalent was for murder. It was the attitude. That drove one to the action. And I'm the person, I would love to see the attitude support the action. It reminds me of, the, of a kid that was in a plane that was jumping all over the seat, and mommy slams him down and says, you sit, and he got back up, and, he, and he's you know, running around doing things, and mommy puts him down, and finally he sits down. And he's calm, and a passenger in front turns around and says, well, you finally got him sitting. She goes, he's sitting on the outside, inside, he's scrambling all over this place. That's not a good place to be. 
Because at any moment, he's going to do what? Start exploding and running around the place again because he hasn't learned to sit. He doesn't have the mental attitude that fits the action. And God wants the mental attitude to fix the action. So when he talks about this, don't, don't get lost in, oh, this will send you to hell. Jesus is the only one to use the word hell. Always, that this much, I think James uses it once. What he's talking about in his genre, he's saying this is how bad this attitude is. Do you realize how bad this attitude is? Now, none of us would talk to our kids like that. We say, hey, you know, you've got to fix your anger. You've got to stop being so mad. Settle down. And saying, you know, that anger is judgmental by hell. You're, you're rotten to the core. And the kid would say, what? You shouldn't talk that way to your kid. You're sending your kid down. No, you're trying to explain to your kid how dangerous that attitude is. It's, it's interesting. It says, if we examine this attitude, it says that the, this, this brother was enraged. It says, verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother. Now, angry basically has to do with an enragement carried by anger. Now, some of us have been mad. That's, that's different. I may be mad at 7 o'clock tonight or 7.30. I don't know. Or disappointed at least. I hope I'm ecstatic, but who knows what I'm going to do. But I'm not enraged. It's not carrying my day. I'll move on the next day and say, hey, we've got another season coming. Who knows? Um, but, you know, those kind of ideas. Uh, but the, here's, here we have, and I think it's missed sometimes in our translations, we have an articular participle. I know I just lost everybody. Come back for a minute. What is, it's not a verb driving this. It's basically saying the one who is continuously angry, the one, it's a noun, it's acting as a noun, the one who is continuously angry. I think that's equivalent because in God's eyes, if you're continuously upset and angered with your brother and that's carrying your life and you've always got this issue of anger with what's going on and you're an angry person, you're basically in a really bad place and you're guilty of a verdict. Then it goes on and says, Raka. Um, now, Jesus isn't saying, if you say this exact word, this is what the penalty is. It's, again, it's the mental attitude, because Raka just means stupid. And, and, and I know many of you said things to your kids, or I have, or some of them may have, or say it to you. We said it to ballplayers before. That's a stupid thing you've done. Now, I'm not calling you stupid, but the thing you've done is stupid. Don't do it again. Don't do that again. Don't put metal in the light socket. That's a stupid thing. You're not stupid, but don't do it. Okay? Because it's why? It's stupid. But this is actually saying you're stupid because you did that. And I don't, I don't see uh, something really blatant about that other than it's saying numbskull or empty-headed. It's basically saying, Charlie Brown, you're a blockhead. And, and most of us grew up with that kind of thing and thought it was kind of funny that Charles Schultz thought Charlie Brown was a blockhead. And we say, that's insulting. Why would you be constantly insulting your kids? But basically, uh, the, the, this insult in, cult, in the culture of the day was considered harmless. Yet Jesus said to his hearers, if you use something that's harmless, it's important how the receiver gets it. And we've got to be careful how we say things. And how we do, how we use even common language, even in a common way, yet not knowing how it's received. How would you like to say dingbat to somebody over and over again? How would they emotionally, would it, would it take its toil on them? How would they deal with that? Um, then he goes on to say, fool, fool. Now Jesus himself calls the Pharisees fools. 
And you say, well, Jesus says here that if you say fool, you're guilty enough to go to fiery hell. So Jesus is sending himself to hell, which would be ridiculous, right? Again, what he's dealing with is the escalation of the idea uh, that it's punishment enough for eternal consequences. Because what's going to happen? The Pharisees dealt well with the outward actions, but they never addressed the mental attitude. Nothing, nothing mattered to them except externals. So if you kept calling some of your brother names, numbskull, fool, whatever you wanted to, uh, they didn't realize the consequences at some point of their actions and how they were saying it. Uh, and it's important, as we look at this, the occurrence of the word uh, that we look at for fool was used just 12 times by Jesus alone. And you say, well, why did he use it? Because he understand how to frame it and use it in a proper way. Many of us just use words any way we want to. We're very flippant with how we say things and how we signify those things. So basically, a translation of verse 22 would go like this. Yet, in fact, I emphatically say to your advantage that anyone who is enraged with his brother continually shall be guilty as judged in a, ver- in a verdict. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka, shall be guilty before the highest court, and whoever says, you moron, shall be guilty of, a, of the fiery place of judgment. But as, as, and as we see this, we're saying well, he's dealing with a mental attitude. That's what he's dealing with. Now it's interesting, because he goes into case law in verse 23, and we'll pick up here next week, but he goes into case law and he doesn't say, hey, this is how Raka is used, this is how fool is used, this is how someone's angry. He goes into a case that has nothing to do with those three words. And it's fascinating as we look at this, because he's giving a wonderful example of how people's mental attitude builds to a negative place. And I, and I think it's important for us to look at that. So we'll pick it up next week on verse 23, and we'll get into chapter uh, 5, verse 27, and on, on with adultery. Because I'll be honest with you, verse 32 is the hardest verse I can find in the hardest section. So we're going to have to deal with some uh, a lot of grammar in that verse. So we'll, prayerfully we can get to that next week. Um, I just think, I don't know where the sheet went, but I think we're just going to stand and pray. Because it's noon, and you all look hungry. Just kidding. Take a moment. Listen, nobody has to run out the door today. It's beautiful. I know you're all saying, i got to get my golf clubs or something, but uh, it's beautiful. But take a moment to, to greet each other, to uh, don't leave things here like kids. i got things to do this afternoon. Father, we thank you uh, for this time that you've given to us, a beautiful time that we've looked into your word, got, got a glimpse of what you want from your people. I know that this was not addressed to us, but... You want us to have the correct mental attitude. You want us to, to align the things in life, use language properly, use our mouths to speak positive things. And Father, we, we know that these things can build to a negative place. And we want to give uh, this society a picture of what your son is like, is how we interact with others, how we hold ourselves up in, in public. Uh, Father, again, we just honored to spend time with you and with each other. In the environment you've given us, we thank you for the blessedness of the day, the sunshine. Again, uh, so thankful for the, these all to spend time here listening, to take notes, to do whatever they need to, to grow in, in a Christian walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.